Welcome to the Calvary Couples Podcast. We're going to be diving into um, a pretty uh, important subject matter uh, as we think about our current cultural context, and the lesson title is Purity by Design. I'm going to share with you some statistics. Uh, There are studies that show that the attitudes have shifted dramatically about issues such as same-sex marriage. As an example, in 2004, Americans opposed same-sex marriage by a margin of 60% to 31%. But in 2019, just 15 years later, a majority of Americans, 61% supported same-sex marriage, while 31% opposed it. So in 15 years, the sentiment had completely changed. So now we have to ask ourselves, do we think that the attitudes of Christians have changed about certain issues of sexuality? One other study indicated that as many as 80% of unmarried evangelical young adults say that they are actively engaged in sexual activity. So we have to ask ourselves, what does God say about sexual practices, and what are his boundaries? And the real question at the root of this is, do we believe genuinely that within his boundaries are where we find the greatest blessing? So the Lord teaches us um, that his ways do not change, that he he himself, as part of his fundamental nature, doesn't change. So what the Lord instructs us um, about what is best for us are timeless principles that we need to apply to our lives. So the first place that we have to go to is to gain an understanding of, first, what what does God say, and also, how does that contrast to what the world's view of sexuality is? We'll find a lot of that in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. And I would say that it seems that our culture really has fewer and fewer limits when it regards um, sexual activity. And in this passage, Paul implores us not to be deceived by the prevailing attitudes of the world. Though many sins have become acceptable today, God's boundaries remain, and there is a high cost to violating them. So Paul lists several sexual sins in verse 9, along with other sins uh, in verse 10, and reminds us that those who practice these sins, here's the great consequence, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now Paul also provides hope for those entangled in sexual sin with this reminder. uh, This is powerful in verse 11. The language says, and such were some of you. What changes the person that's entangled in sexual sin? Well, the scripture tells us that God washes, sanctifies, and justifies us through Jesus and by the Spirit of God when we repent. So, with that in mind, there are many that accuse Christians of being narrow-minded and even being biased against those who engage in sexual sin. Now, the Christian is to be against the sin, but there's this attitude of, well, we must love the sinner as Jesus demonstrated, and that is um, a well-meaning statement. Because Jesus does engage sinners at all places throughout his entire ministry. But we must not be naive enough to think that this isn't a zero-sum um, issue. That as Christians, when, when, we, when we attempt to win someone over by speaking out against the consequences of sinful behavior, to assume that that person is um, not going to, uh, um, well, I guess the, the idea that the person is not going to receive uh, necessarily that, that message. And the reality is that many of us have also engaged in these sins, but repented of them and embraced a different life. So, God forgives all who repent and washes these sins away. That is the, the truth that, we, that, that is pivotal in this passage in verse 11. So, Paul provides a road um, out of, or a road to avoid, in some cases, these sins. And sometimes people become entangled or remain entangled in sexual sin by making uh, seemingly um, unimportant decisions. There are many things that might be okay to do, but they may not be the best for us. And we need to make sure that we are not brought under the power of anything but Jesus. Now, there are behaviors that are sometimes unique to us that make us more susceptible to sin. For example, places we go or activities that we engage in that put us at greater risk for temptation. 
And Paul attacked the attitude that some have today that, um, well, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just sex, implying that there's no real problem with sexual activity outside of God's boundaries. Rather than succumbing to this attitude, let us allow God's power to work within us. And let us acknowledge that our bodies belong to God. So Paul explained that the reason sexual sin is so damaging, when we belong to Christ and have the Holy Spirit, we take that testimony, we take the name of Christ, and in, in essence, not, not in reality, but in essence, we, we involve him in the, in, the, in the sinful activities that we engage in. So therefore, when we commit sexual sin, we bring reproach to the name of Christ. We read about that in verse 16 and 17. And with this in mind, we must flee sexual sin and be reminded that our bodies, at a fundamental level, our bodies do not belong to us. We steward our bodies, just like we steward our material possessions, like we steward our earthly goods for the furtherance of the kingdom of God, so do we, so do we steward the body that Christ has given us, because it was bought by him. So how do we develop a biblical mindset about sexuality? Well, the mindset of the world has resulted in devastating consequences as things like sexually transmitted disease are on the rise. We think of the innumerable amount of babies that have been aborted in an overly sexualized culture. We must push back on this mindset. We think of things like human trafficking, child pornography, homes that have been damaged, and um, all of these things that go on in our world. It, it's, it's unjustified to say, well, this doesn't hurt anybody. We look in the culture around us and can say, certainly. In fact, when many will say, well, prove to me that your way is the best way. I think as a Christian, we could counter that by saying the exact same thing. Well, prove to me that your, your way is the best way. And what we've seen in a secularized culture, especially with view of sexuality, is that this has not turned out uh, very well. And the things that we read about in Scripture seem to be unfolding before our very eyes as the consequences that are tearing young people apart, that are tearing homes apart, that are tearing um, really people's minds down to their core apart. So let us express a biblical mindset of sexuality, but we need to be careful to do it in a loving way because these issues are deeply personal for every everyone involved, whether they themselves have been involved or certainly someone that they know or love has been involved. So let's ask, let's answer the question. What is God's will for sexual activity and is it best for us? I think 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 through 8 helps us gain some understanding. Rather than following the mindset of the world, let us follow God's mindset. This is the mindset that is best for us. The reason for that is because it is God who's made us. It is God who's created us. It is God who's, who's designed us. And it's God's will that we abstain from sexual sin. So to do so, we must learn how to live in this word we'll use called purity and honor. And unfortunately, the word purity has been maligned and misappropriated in many ways. But at a fundamental level, it's just a statement that this is how God has designed us and this is what God has that's best for us. So we need to be re refused to be carried away by the lust that dominates the world. And when we engage in sexual sin, we harm others. And we are called to a lifestyle of holiness. So how are we to obey this passage? Well, in the days of the early church, many taught that being celibate was best. So is that the answer? Well, does obedience to this message lead to an unfulfilled or less pleasurable lifestyle? Not at all. Paul warns against false teachers who said the Christian must be celibate. Abstinence from marriage and sexual expression is wrong. He states that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 5. So God ordained and performed the original marriage and viewed their state of intimacy as good. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. So let us also be reminded that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding in John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and he blessed that union. 
So, there's no escaping that God will judge sexual sin. However, sex within marriage is a pleasurable, fulfilling, and part of God's design. It's not just right, it's also best. So the biblical answer to our world's approach to sex is marriage and the sexual union it provides in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It is in the middle of a warning against adultery that we receive in Proverbs 5, chapter 18 through 19. Sex within marriage is beautiful and more wonderful, just read the Song of Solomon, than anything the world is peddling. So therefore, those of us who are married should pay special attention to this area of our lives. Paul said that we should not deprive one another, or otherwise we'll be at risk for sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. And Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 affirms the sexual union in marriage. A stable marriage is the building block for society. So why might married people have Uh, better sex and be happier? Well, the research points out that the simple convenience of marriage and cues as a married couple that we know one another. And then there is freedom from anxiety and the worry of things like sexually transmitted diseases. If you're married, take time to plan and prepare for intimacy. And if you're single, save yourself for marriage, which is the much better way. And you might say, well, that sounds like such an archaic way of living. Well, I think I can make a strong argument that for the vast um, portion of human history, the most stable societies have been those with stable homes those with stable marriages. Those stable communities have been founded and predicated on stable family units. And this is part of what makes a family unit stable. um, Sociological studies have shown um, that that ideas in in our modern culture, such as, well, if we live together first, we can try it out and we'll see if it works and then we'll have a better marriage. But even secular sociologists have, have, have performed studies that show that simply isn't the case. It's completely backwards that those who are married first, generally speaking, have much more stable um, relationships than those who, um, for instance, live together first. So there's a lot of things that we as Christians know foundationally in the scriptures to be true that um, even secular society has been able to prove apart from uh, biblical information. So how do we overcome this? In sexual, sexual immorality must be put to death. Colossians 3, verse 5 and 6. Because sexual sin is so damaging and God's way is the best, we must put to death sexual sin. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, is it really that big of a deal? Of all the vices, I mean, aren't there other things that we could focus in on that ruin people more? Well, there is a prevailing attitude that um, sexual sin, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's two consenting people. What's the big deal? I recently became um, aware of a study that was performed by a medical doctor who uh, specializes in pain management. And he himself was actually uh, um, in bondage to this, uh, to pornography specifically. And he was doing studies on um, folks that are addicted to methamphetamines, heroin, as well as other opiates. And the brain scans, the way that the brains function, the different activity of the brain was identical to the brain activity of uh, someone who was addicted to pornography. And the thing that was fascinating about that was that it really does damage you on a personal level in, in the sense that it, it affects your impulse control. It affects your ability to relate to people. But what was so powerful was um, after 14 months of, of winning victory over this bondage to uh, pornography was that the brain began to, to function again like it had originally, like its original function. So there, there's other instances that I could go into where we, we harm other people. Um, as I mentioned earlier, things like child pornography, human trafficking, all these issues are predicated on sexual sin, family units that are torn apart. But even on a personal level to say that, well, this doesn't hurt anybody, it doesn't even hurt me, it's just fundamentally wrong. That we know from Scripture that there are consequences, and now we can identify physically what some of these consequences are. But ultimately... Uh, 
we really do these things with the wrath of God in the forefront of our minds. And this means that we will need to take steps to avoid or disentangle from these kind of sins. You know, after discussing specifically adultery and things like lust in our hearts, Jesus said that one should pluck out his or her eye if it causes that person to sin. Now, of course, this is figurative, but Jesus was clearly saying at times one must go to great lengths to disentangle from or avoid sexual sin. And it's good to remind ourselves that we are to have no association whatsoever with sexual sin. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. This causes us to consider the attitude we have about sexual sin, which is revealed by our conversation, our reading, our viewing habits, our internet consumption. We would all do well to take steps to put to death any root of sexual sin that arises within us and to, take, and to make plans for avoiding sexual sin. You know, often when someone struggles with this type of sin, they become very confused. And they may ask God to forgive them and even remove the desire they have only to continue to struggle. And some confuse this continued temptation with thinking that they were made that way. But scripture teaches us that we have sinful desires because we live in a fallen world. And everybody's sinful desire is different. It is God working in us that reduces these desires and enables us to live the life of purity that is his will. So for example, we make a decision to either feed the flesh or the spirit. You find that in Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. And we do so by the places we go, the things we look at, and the thoughts we allow our minds to think. Now, we feed the flesh when we put ourselves in places that are more likely to entice our lust, but we feed the spirit when we avoid those places and, make our, and take our thoughts captive. So let us also remember that God cleanses us when we repent of sin and can remake us and use us. Consider the characters of the genealogy of Christ who struggled with sexual sin like Judah, Rahab, David, and Solomon. I want you to walk away from this knowing that if this is what you struggle with, don't let this, the devil's lies of, well, there's no one else who's struggling with, with, with this but you. In fact, that's one of his greatest tools is to convince you that you're on your own. Bring these things to the light. Bring it to trusted people who will come alongside you, who will encourage you and help you to remain accountable, to live a life of purity because that is the best witness and that is where God's greatest blessing lies for us. So I hope this lesson has been helpful and I look forward to studying with you next time on the Calvary Couples Podcast.